Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. I'm not sure they do this anymore, but when I was a kid and we'd go to Six Flags, they would have these artists that would uh, draw caricatures of, of people. And if you're unfamiliar with that, you, you emphasize one aspect of the person and, and diminish others for a desired effect. So like, for example, like Jay Leno, uh, it's all about the chin. Yeah. For uh, Trump, it's all about the hair. For Obama, it's all about the ears. And so what they do is, for a desired effect, they accentuate one aspect of the person and, and minimize other. And that's what a lot of people do who claim to follow Jesus. That it's, hey, following Jesus is all about this, it's all about this, this is who Jesus is to me, and this is, and, and, that, and at that expense, downplay certain characteristics or silence, perhaps even deny others. It's a selectively added picture to make him more palatable to me or to make him more palatable to others. But Jesus isn't anyone's mascot. He's a king and a savior. And if you're new with us, if you're following online, uh, the way that we do preaching here is we try just to give it to you straight, put you in community, group you with other people to help you wrestle with the implications of following Jesus and then lead you to prayer and the power of the spirit to help you walk it out. Because nobody looks at Jesus and what his claims demand and say, you know what, I got this. Um, you don't got this. And we need each other. We need the spirit to do this. And so we're going to take a look at a few topics in this series. Hit pause on Matthew. We'll get back to that here in a few short weeks. But we wanted to tackle a few subjects that are uh, particularly a hot button issues where oftentimes we will take aside without really considering what Jesus has to say or how we should respond. And so we're doing a three-part series called Controversial Jesus, uh, Jesus and Cancel Culture, Jesus and Gender, Jesus in Privilege. Uh, it's going to be controversial, and it's going to be about Jesus, Jesus and controversy. I'm very creative, I know. And so at some point in this series, just kind of by word of warning, your buttons are going to be pushed. I don't, what, regardless of what spectrum you come from, what side of this story or whatever you come from, your buttons are going to be pushed. And I want to prepare you for that moment. Um, the first thing I want to say is if it's something I said or I, I summarized a narrative or a position that culture has and you don't like my wording or you don't like how I said it, I just want you to know if you come to me and say, hey, I don't like that, you know, I'll probably say something like, you know what, I didn't like it either. Like, I hold my opinion, uh, my perspective loosely. If it is, though, number two, something that has to do with God's word, specifically something Jesus says, I want to encourage you to learn to love being contradicted by him. I want to encourage you to learn to love to be contradicted by him. It's, it's something that in, in practice will make you feel safe. This is what David um, says about in the most famous, King David, and the Bible says about the most famous psalm. I mean, you know about Psalm 23. I mean, it, it gets spoken at funerals. It, it's on one of your coffee cups. It's somewhere in your house, I'm sure. 
And one of the things he says, he says, Thy rod, your rod and your staff comfort me. Your contradiction and correction of me, in other words, they bring comfort to me. So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to fear. I'm going to be comforted because I know you're going to get me to still waters and green pastures. Being contradicted by Jesus is such a good thing. It's a, it's a necessary thing, I might add. C.S. Lewis said this, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you, want to make, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. But ultimately, this series, is, again, is not about controversy. It's about Jesus, that we're not following an opinion. We're following a person. And we want, we want to put him at the very center of our lives. And we want him to be the biggest part of us. And we want him to be the biggest part of this conversation and everything that we do and think. So today, I'm actually going to, this is, I think this is probably the least controversial, Jesus and cancel culture. It's a contemporary word for those who may be unfamiliar. Uh, used to describe people who are deemed to have acted or spoken in an unacceptable manner and therefore ostracized, boycotted, or shunned by those with cultural power. For most people, and this is why it's not controversial, most people have a negative view of cancel culture. But methods aside, I just want to say that what they want is not all bad, because what they want is accountability. They see present and past evil being swept under the rug, and they're throwing the flag. They're calling foul. They want accountability. The term cancel culture is relatively new, but the concept isn't. Uh, whether you look at McCarthyism after World War II, uh, the Salem witch trials in the 1600s, any dictatorship, the idea of ostracizing and marginalizing people based upon a set of values or ideas is as old as the human race. In fact, Jesus lived in a time and a period where there was a cancel culture of sorts that operated within religious circles and highlighted by a group known as the Pharisees. And they believed that there were certain things that made you irrevocably unclean, cut off, not apart. And they wanted accountability. People need to be accountable for what they have done or what they do. And there are many times in the Bible, and you see this, there's like this showdown between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees consistently tried to get Jesus in a position to either choose accountability to the law or mercy toward people. This binary thing. I'm either going to be a, make people accountable to the law or he's going to show mercy to people. I just want you to know that in Jesus and in only Jesus, you don't have to choose. It's amazing reality that if you've never heard this before, I am delighted to introduce you to the person and work of Jesus. And there's a story that puts how Jesus treats us at center stage. And I just want to say again as a way of introduction, or in addition, I should say, is that how you view how Jesus sees you is the most important thing in your life. And here's why. How you view God sees you is how you view other people. The way you think God looks at you, the way you think God treats you is how you're going to look and treat other people. So let's look at a story, very famous story. It's in, uh, a version of it is in all four gospels, Luke 
7 is the one we're going to look at, and we'll, do, we'll follow along together. I'll make a few, uh, some commentary on the verses to help us understand, and then I'll draw some conclusions. Um, verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, you may be like, hey, time out. You just said that they were at odds with each other, and they were. Um, and so it's like, well, why, why are they inviting him in? Well, they're not inviting him in to worship him, but to use him. Uh, Pharisees were ladder climbers. Uh, they wanted to look good in front of people. And at this point in the life and ministry of Jesus, it's toward the end of his life, is he was wildly popular. And so they invited him over to gain favor with the people. In fact, they, when they invited people over, they left the door of their house open so that people could see who he was, who they were dining with. And in this case, it was Jesus. And behold, verse seven, a woman of the city. Now, this does not mean there's a woman who liked urban areas, all right? Okay, this isn't what it's like. You know, I like rural, I like urban. She likes urban. That's not what it's going here. This, is, this was a slang reference to a certain profession. So you could say, Rachel, my wife is a woman of Brian. This was a woman who belonged to the city. She was a lady of the night, we might say. Verse, I'm really trying hard to keep this. Anyway, verse 37, who who was a sinner when she learned, excuse me, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table. So when she, the the woman, learned that Jesus was reclining at this table in the Pharisee's house, she brought with uh, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. A couple things you need to know about this flask. Number one is very expensive. If you convert it to dollars in two thousand years of inflation, seventy grand. Second thing, it was a tool of the trade. So they would uh, prostitutes would wear this as a uh, connected to a necklace, and they would wear it around their neck, and it was marketing. So when men would smell this fragrance, they would know that they were near the product. And when they would see a woman wearing it, they would know that that is the product. So using this tool of the trade, verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, you can imagine they're leaning on one, he's leaning on one arm, his feet going that way. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, this, if you're just reading this in your Bible reading plan, it's very likely this goes, you know, one in, in one ear, out the other, goes over her head, like no big deal. This was a very, very big deal in this culture. No adult woman, no adult woman would ever, ever let down her hair in the presence of another man who was not her husband. This was legal grounds for divorce it may help you understand a little bit about what's going on in 1 Corinthians 11. If you don't know about 1 Corinthians 11, don't worry about it. We'll just move on. It's, it's another message. So she does hear for, here's the point. She does hear for Jesus, which she had only done previously for customers. So you can understand why the Pharisees are thinking, number one, how do they know each other? And number two, what is she getting ready to do? Verse 39, now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he doesn't say this out loud, he says it to himself, if this man were a prophet, 
he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He said this to himself, and Jesus answering him said, answering what? Not something he said, but something he thought in his mind. So it's, it's a, little bit of, a little bit of irony going on here. He says, if, if, if he was a prophet, he would know about her. And he's like, well, I know something about you. <laughs> Knowing he's caught, he's like, all right. Say what you got to say. Certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both, 550. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, picture this in your head. Okay, this next verse. Picture this in your head. Now, turning toward the woman, he says to Simon, He's facing the woman, but he's talking to Simon. He says, do you see this woman? Implication, you don't see this woman. You see a category, you see a failure, you see a sinner, you may see a body you desire. But do you see this woman made in the image of God, loved and cherished by the creator of all things, who is valuable and deserves to be treated as such? Okay question. Is there anyone in your life that you do not see as an image bearer of God, cherished and valuable and deserves to be treated as such? Okay, let's go back to the story. Still looking at the woman, he continued to talk to Simon. I entered your house. Now notice what he does. This will be important in a few minutes. I entered your house, you gave me no water for your feet, no water for his feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Two, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Three, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now these guys, their minds just explode. They're like, what? Wait a minute. Those who are at the table begin to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Now they are rightly asking this question. And the only person who can forgive sins is the one whom which the sin was committed against. And according to the scriptures and according to the Torah, which the Pharisees would absolutely believe, is that ultimately all sin is against God. So they're sitting there thinking like only God can forgive sins. It's like, ah, horseshoes and hand grenades. They are so, so close because God was right in front of them. And he said to the woman, Verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Not your tears, not your emotions, not your sincerity, not even your sacrifice. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So the Pharisees in this story, uh, in this period of time, believed in law and works-based religion. Here's how the math works on law and base religions. God's acceptance of you is dependent upon your obedience of him. The more you keep the rules, the more God loves you and accepts you. 
Good people are in, moral people are in, bad people are out, immoral people are out, righteous are in, sinful are out. So in this room, Simon and the Pharisees are in, the woman is out. How you view how God accepts and views you is how you view and accept other people. If God accepts you based upon what you do, then you will judge other people based upon what they do. If you believe that God accepts you based upon what he has done, you will treat other people likewise. After all, Jesus says, he didn't give us the golden rule, which is you know, treat others as you wanna be treated. He gave us the platinum rule, which is to love others the way I have loved you. And the only way you get there is by faith. Ephesians 2, for grace you have been saved through faith. I'll just underline this in every Bible you own. This is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. It's a gift, not a result of work so that no one can boast. Here's what, here's what we do most of the time. If we believe that God loves us based upon our past, when someone asks you how you're doing, you're like, I've been pretty good lately. Things are pretty good. If you believe that God loves you based upon your future and someone asks you how you're doing, you talk about your promises, your resolutions or whatever, but God does not love you based upon your past or your future. He loves you based upon his past and he'll give you his future. If you believe that you are accepted and loved by God based upon what you do, that is the definition of of something called self-righteousness. That the righteousness, the right standing, the thing that, that makes me right before God and others is what I have done. And if you are on the self-righteousness train, um, you, will cancel, you will eventually cancel people who do not live up to your standard, which at some level is arbitrary. Alistair Begg, I don't know if there's any Alistair Begg fans in the room. Uh, he's Scottish. He's, an, he's, a, he's in Cleveland. He's a preacher. He's Scottish. And he delivered the whole evangelism explosion question. Remember that question? If you were to die today, where would you go? Which, you know, almost sounds threatening. You know, you go to someone's port, you know, if, you were to, if I were to kill you, where would you go? It's... We're, do the blessing challenge. Don't do this. But anyway, so we, so he answers this question. He's like, the only way you can answer this question is in the first person. Or excuse me. If we answer this question in the first person, sorry, back that one up. If we answer this question in the first person, because I obey. So do you know where you're going to go? Yeah, because I've obeyed, because I've worked hard, because I gave, because I prayed, because I was baptized. If we answer that question in the first person, he says, we've already gone wrong. The only way that you and I can answer this question is in the third person, because he, because he's worthy, because he is good, because he is merciful, because he was sacrificial, because he is wonderful, because he is loving. It's the only way that we can answer that question is in the third person. It's about what he has done, not what I have done. And then he says, think about the thief on the cross. Remember this guy? This was the one that Jesus said when he was on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now think about this. This guy had never met Jesus before that day. 
He, we don't even know if he, know, he knew Jesus' name. He had never been to church or temple. He was never baptized. He didn't even know that there was a Ten Commandments or a Bible. And yet, and yet, he made it. How? How did he make it? Well, so imagine this guy shows up at the gates of heaven, like all the movies presuppose, and there's an angel there with a clipboard. And the angel goes, okay, tell me why you're here. And the thief on the cross says, I don't know. He's like, how do you know? How do you not know why you're here? The guy's like, I don't even know where here is. And he's like, well, let me ask you a few questions. Are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Never heard of it. What about the infallibility of scriptures? Sorry, don't know anything about that either. Okay, tell me when you were baptized. Man, I don't even like baths. So I, you know, I, I don't even remember. I don't know. Eventually, the angel in frustration then asked, then on what grounds are you here? All the thief can say is the man on the middle cross said I could. And that's all that you can say is the only reason why I can be here is because Jesus has declared that I can be here. That's the only thing that you stand on, nothing else. I dare not trust in something less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is why Jesus would later say that prostitutes and tax collectors get in before teachers of the law because it's not based upon what we do or we don't do. It's based upon what he has done. And tax collectors and prostitutes are more likely to realize that they fall short. Ironically, the ones who think they deserve to be in are out, and the ones that know they deserve to be out are in. Hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven. And heaven is full of people who know they deserve hell. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Translation, don't be proud. Well, shall we keep on sinning? I'm sure there's someone under here, 35, going, yeah, those legalistic traditional Pharisees, and here's a woman who's just being her authentic self, you know, sexually liberated, you know, go girl, you know. Don't miss, that was terrible, terrible. <laughs> terrible acting. Don't miss, don't miss, don't miss that this woman is in tears because she hates her past life of sin and wants a new one. And Jesus clearly calls her a sinner and tags on her sins are many. Jesus does not affirm her. He does something way, way better. He forgives her. Do not look to be affirmed by Jesus. Jesus affirms this and Jesus affirms that. Jesus does not affirm any sin, regardless of where it comes from. He does something way better. He forgives them. He does not cancel people. He cancels sin. He does not cancel people because of their sin. He cancels sin because of people. He loves people. He died for people. For God so loved the world, all of them, that he gave his own life. We don't want a cancel culture that arbitrarily condemns some behavior as reprehensible, but others as virtuous. Don't think because you're in these four walls that somehow you are, that somehow that doesn't apply. 
We don't want cancel culture, and we don't want to gloss over issues of injustice or unrighteous and be comfortable with the darkness in our world. You don't have to choose. We don't want a cancel culture or an apathy culture, but we want a grace and forgiveness culture. A forgiveness and grace culture leads to radical transformation in worship. People who look at, that look at individuals and groups of people who gloss over past and present sins are rightly worried. Who's going to pay? What are we going to do with this? We're going to sweep it under the rug? No. He's going to forgive it. And when you meet the real Jesus, and I don't mean some mascot that you've made up, you meet the real Jesus, it leads to radical transformation and worship because she pours out this alabaster jar at the feet of Jesus, which again was a tool of her trade. And doing so, she's in effect saying, I'm never going to need this again. I'm never going to need this again. I have a pastor friend uh, who recently got this in his offering bucket. Let me show you this. Um, the city location got it right away. I may need to explain to a few of you. Uh, so those aren't Brussels sprouts, all right? Okay. Um, so he got, he got this in his offering. He's sharing this with a group of us. He says, I got the, and there was a note attached to it. And it says, and the note just said, I felt like I needed to give this to Jesus. And my friend who leads a church of thousands, he said to this, to this group, which I thought was pretty cool. He said, that was the biggest offering we got that week. Lots of other people wrote big checks, but this guy rearranged his entire life. Jesus saves us as we are, but never leaves us as we are. He is a savior who delivers us from the penalty of sin, but he is also a Lord and a king who frees us from the power of sin. John's, he says it this way in, in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now let me just, here's a, here's a, here's a way that you can tell if you're on the grace side or the legalistic side. If you're on the legalistic side, you read this verse as a threat. If you love me, you'll obey me. Or maybe we've used this with other people. Hey, if you really love Jesus, you would obey him. It's a threat. Prove your love to him by obeying him. It's not a threat. It's a promise. Hey, if you, if you fall in love with Jesus and you f look at him, so, so I'm reading in, in Numbers about where they raise the, the, the serpent onto the, uh, the, the, these snakes get in the camp and they bite them they, and they die because of the poison. And so God tells Moses to put up a, a pole and put a iron serpent up there. And Jesus refers to this in John three, by the way, stay with me, as him, like he is that one. And the interesting thing about both in the numbers example and what Jesus says in John 3, is the only way that you are, all that you have to do to be saved is to look at it. Just look at it. All you have to be saved is look at him. Look at him. See him. You see him and you're going to be transformed. This is a promise to us. When I met Rachel, I rearranged my entire life 
not out of fear of her rules, but out of love and desire for her. When you meet Jesus, you will reorientate your entire life around him out of love. And this is exactly where this woman is because she does the three things. She does the three things that these Pharisees were meant to do. She does the things that the religious guys were meant to do. And in this culture, it was standing operating procedure when you, when you hosted someone in your home. There are three things that everybody, common knowledge that you must do. Number one, you greeted them with a kiss. And guys, it was not weird back then. Number two, you anointed their head with oil. I don't know if you watched The Chosen. They're all walking around in bathrobes in 110 degree temperature. It is an ax body spray situation. And this is what was going on with the oil on the head. Number three, you were supposed to wash your feet because their feet were nasty from the sand and dirt and they had their feet elevated toward the table. Now remember, this door was open to the dinner party because of they were virtue, virtue signalers. The Pharisees were ladder climbers. And this woman of the city kept real close to Jesus because this is probably, he's probably the only man who ever treated her not like an object. Let's be honest. And I bet she noticed. These guys didn't honor him. They didn't kiss him. They didn't wash his feet. They didn't anoint his head with oil. So at the risk of her life, and certainly all kinds of ridicule, I've got to get in there and I must honor him. And she does the exact three things that the religious leaders were supposed to do. She kisses his feet, anoints him with ointment, and then she washes his feet with her own hair. She's like, I don't care what anyone thinks of me. I'm gonna express my love for Jesus. If we create cancel culture in the church, legalism will have a legalistic culture. In a world where it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, we all end up blind and toothless. If we create apathy in the church, we get too comfortable with darkness and the truth is not in us. And we need the prophetic voices of the day to wake us up to what we have gone asleep to. We don't want a cancel culture or an apathy culture, but we want a grace culture that takes sin seriously, but we don't place it on others or ourselves, but the foot of the cross. Let me show you a, a chart I found really helpful 15 years ago. It's still helpful today, but it's when I found it 15 years ago. At the point of conversion, one thing happens as you, this is time left to right. As you pursue with God, you get a deeper and deeper knowledge of his holiness. Simultaneously, you get a deeper and deeper knowledge of your own sinfulness. The apostle Paul, at the end of his life, in 1 uh, Timothy 1, he says, this is a statement worthy of our full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And here's what happened. Can we go back there? When, when the more you see God, you really look at him and the more that you see uh, your own sinfulness, what gets bigger? What other people do and don't do? Ah, oh, the cross. The cross gets bigger. Jesus gets bigger. Your love for him gets bigger. Your worship for him gets bigger. Pop quiz. Don't say this out loud. Who's the biggest sinner you know? If it wasn't you, my brother, my sister, please repent of legalism today. 
don't go down that train. It will, it is what, it's what Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. What is, weir- what is weighing you down? It is your self-righteousness. And it's weighing you down. When you wake up, when you go to bed, as you think about your life, not enough. And then you put that burden on others to make yourself feel better. But the good news is, is we're not putting it on others. We're not putting it on ourselves. We're putting it on Jesus, putting it on the cross. We're putting it on him. And that's what he's come to do. He's not come to sweep sin under the rug. He's come to forgive it so that we can have life and have life to the fullest. So let's do a personal audit. Have you been forgiven much or have you been forgiven little? He who has been forgiven much loves much. Exuberant worship. Days and dollars, he's the most weighty thing in my life. And that's why we would say something like, you're, 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 you're serving, you're giving, your actual singing and worship in this kind of environment should increase. Why should it increase? Because you're seeing Jesus more and you're more aware of how you fall short and the cross of Christ is picking up and you're like, oh, when I became a Christian, I thought it was like this, but oh my word, Oh my word, oh my word. So do you forgive? Have you been forgiven little? Need to be forgiven of a few offenses? Or were you dead in your sin? That's why here, you can stand up, band can come on up. That's why here at Jubilee Church, we, we do want to be, want to encourage you in your worship with your days and your dollars. And we want to encourage you in your worship in this environment. That's why we're expressive. That's why we sing, shout, clap our hands, raise our hands. Every once in a while, you might see someone, two people, three people dancing. Who knows? Why? Because we're charismatic. No, because of this, because of this. It's not a brand of Christianity. It is the reality of the gospel. Let me talk to my brothers, the men in this room who are like me um, and want to hide behind a personality. Hey, I don't need to express with my body what is true in my heart. Yeah, I don't buy that. Husbands, if your wife came to you, says, I don't need to express with my body what I feel in my heart. There'd be a line from here to Canada of men saying, that's not right. Oh yeah, you and I have been bought with a price. Our body is not our own. Well, whose is it? 
That's why the, the scripture says in Romans, like, present your body, your members of your body, not for unrighteousness, for, but, for, but for righteousness. And I wanna encourage you, I wanna encourage you to express with your body what you feel in your heart. Express with your body. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and body. Love him. And then as you, this thing is going on vertically, this horizontal, you'll love others, love others too with the love that I've loved you. I want you, if you're not a Christian, I just wanna say to you, I'm so glad that you're here. And um, the only thing, if you've never heard this before, what makes you righteous, what, what anybody here is ultimately standing on is what Jesus has done for you. You don't, there's nothing you have to do other than to look to Jesus, look to him. Turn from your old life. I don't need this anymore. Turning, I'm gonna, my worship is all on you, Jesus. I'm gonna honor you. Christians, in our discipleship, let's not get so hung up on what the, world is doing this or they're doing this or they're doing that. Hey, what's going on with you? Have you been forgiven much or have you been forgiven little? And don't hear that again as a threat. Hear that as like God wants to release you. In any way this is true, so we come to him and say, God, I need to be reminded. That's why we come every, together every week. We come together every week because you and I forget. We forget how, God, how good God has been to us. We, we, we move from God-reliance to self-reliance. It just happens. Happens faster than a week. I mean, every day, every hour, we just rely, rely, rely. But to come back, oh, it's all about you. Let's look to him. Jesus, we are so grateful for the life that you gave to us. That you have not come to cancel us, but cancel our sin. The debt, you canceled the record of debt on the cross nailed to your hands, nailed to your feet. Jesus, I, I, I just pray as, as we are, as, as those who are seeking to follow you as disciples of you, God, we just, we just wanna turn from our self-righteousness, from the attention on what we do and don't do. And we wanna turn the attention back on what you have done for us. And God, may that melt our heart into worship, into expressing grace to the hurting world around us. Amen.